Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and I'm glad that you could be with us today. Our lesson today, we are continuing with our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, and these lessons are coming from the Nazarene Quarterly. Today's lesson is the lesson for July 12th, and the title is Reading, Remembering, Restoring. But before we get into the lesson, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day that you've given us. We thank you for this opportunity to study your word. And we just pray that you would be with us today, that your spirit would illuminate our hearts and give us exactly out of this what we, what we need to learn in your name. Amen. The theme or focus of our lesson deals with the exiles. They had returned from Babylon. They had returned to Jerusalem. They had rebuilt the altar. They had begun the sacrifices again. And by this time, they had rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. But all of these were just preliminary steps. There was one crucial step that was left, and that was for the people to renew the covenant that they had first established under Moses. This was the covenant that had been broken. This was why they were sent away into exile in the first place. Now they were back in the land, but to fully be the people of God, they needed to renew the covenant. So what steps would be needed to do this? Our lesson today shows how the exiles renewed the covenant and what we can learn from them as we seek uh, to renew the covenant in our church today. As we look at the exiles, we see that they had a failure to thrive. They were back in the land, but they were not fully possessing the land. They weren't being the people of God that God had planned, had envisioned them to be. The original exiles had returned over 90 years ago. This is the second and third generations, but they were content to live in a destroyed land under the thumb of the nations around them, uh, living a life really of fear where they were just getting by. Nehemiah returns and he convinces them into making a fresh start to getting the wall of Jerusalem rebuilt. And they do this, but now it's time to take the final step to renew the covenant. It's important that they realize what it means to be God's people and to fully live this out. The problem was they had never been united into a community. They were living as individuals, each one working for himself. You get indications of this when we see how the rich treated the poor. Uh, they were actually selling their Jewish brothers and sisters into slavery. And we also see it in how they neglected rebuilding Jerusalem with its walls. Evidently, they were working on their own land, uh, rebuilding their own homes, their own farms and villages. They were working for themselves. They weren't willing to come together to work for the good of the community. So, if they were truly going to be God's chosen people, they would have to form a true community. They would have to become one people, living under the covenant that God had established. And they couldn't do this uh, until they were united. If some were obedient, 
but others were slipping away into idolatry, they would find themselves back in the same shape that they were in when they had been sent away to exile. Today's lesson shows three important steps that they took to rebuild community to restore this covenantal relationship between themselves and God. First, they confessed their sins, the sins of their ancestors. They had to acknowledge where they stood before God. They could not pretend. Secondly, they had to commit themselves to obeying the law, to restoring the covenant. They had to commit to living together as a community under the law, where each one would do his part. Finally, they celebrated. They celebrated the glorious grace and goodness of God in how He welcomed them back into relationship. So we can learn a lot from the exiles. We too are often in a condition where we fail to thrive. I have a slide here of a verse from Philippians. In Philippians 2.15, Paul lays out the vision for the church. He writes, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. But is this the reality that we see when we look at our churches? You know, in survey after survey, we see a church that slipped into the same lifestyle, the same attitudes, the same values that the culture around us has. And one important reason for this, we are failing to live in community. We are failing to be part of the body of Christ, where each part nourishes and supports the others. Instead, we attempt to live uh, solitary lives as Christians, where each member focuses on himself. And this robs us of the vitality of the power that are available to us in Christ. We were never intended to live the Christian life as individuals. Instead, God intended for us to live in community, to live as a network with each one sustaining and being sustained by the others. I have a slide here of a quote from John Calvin. He writes, Salvation is personal, but not individualistic. Salvation is personal in that it requires each person, each individual, to go through the process on their own. But it's not individualistic. We don't live out the Christian life uh, on our own. We tend to think of each person coming to Christ uh, on their own as an individual. But in Scripture, we actually see a model where entire groups come together, uh, where they become Christians together. Uh, it tells us in the book of Acts that Lydia, uh, when she became a Christian, it says she and the members of her household were baptized. And later, the Philippine jailer, uh, it says immediately he and all his household were baptized. When Peter went to see Cornelius, Cornelius brought together his relatives and close friends. And after Peter spoke, Scripture tells us, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Then they were all baptized. So when Cornelius came to Christ, it was with his entire family and his close friends, this group gathered together. Now, we don't want to minimize the importance that each person repents and seeks forgiveness for his or her own sins. But 
we need to recognize uh, our functioning as a group. I have a slide here of advice that was given to John Wesley. When he was a young man, he writes about meeting a person he described as a serious older Christian. And this older man told him, he said, Sir, you wish to serve God and go to heaven. Remember, you cannot serve him alone. You must therefore find companions or make them. The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. And Wesley took this to heart. When he established Methodism, he set up a system of various groups, societies and classes and bands, all of these to help believers grow in holiness. I have a slide of a quote from Paul Tripp. Uh, he writes, Our lives were designed to be community projects. And I never really thought of this until I saw this quote from him. But think of what this means. God designed us as Christians to develop in the presence and by the nurturing of our fellow believers. My spiritual life is not based entirely on what I do. It's a result of being helped along, being prodded along by my uh, fellow Christians. Uh, I have a slide that shows several scripture verses that bear this out. Look at Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And then Philippians 2, 4. Let each look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And Corinthians 12, 7, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So Paul presents a very clear picture of this using the metaphor of the church as a physical body, the church existing as one living organism with each member playing his particular role or function. I have a slide here of Ephesians 4, verse 25, and Romans 12, 5. Ephesians says, We are parts of each other in one body. Romans says, So in Christ, we though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Paul goes on to emphasize how ridiculous it would be for part of the body to try to go its own way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he writes, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Now, we would never expect an eye to survive on its own or a foot to remain alive if it was separated from the body. So the question becomes, how do we exist as part of a community? How do we help to create this community of believers? A community so close to one another, so tied to each other, that Paul describes us as being part of one body. The first essential step in building community is confession. When the exiles came together to renew the covenant, they began with confessing. Scripture says, They stood in their places and confessed the sins and the sins of their ancestors. 
They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. So confession is recognizing that a wrong has been done and admitting your part in it, taking responsibility for what you did, admitting that you have sinned. We don't see a lot of true confession in our society. Instead, we apologize, but without taking any blame upon ourselves. We are willing to say something like, if I have done something to offend, or if anyone's feelings were hurt, then I'm sorry. Well, confession is essential because community cannot be formed as long as the wrongs of the past remain. These wrongs have to be dealt with, and confession is that critical first step. We can't just pretend that these things never existed. They have to be brought into the open and dealt with. Uh, under apartheid, South Africa was ruled by a white minority, and there were many abuses that took place. Black citizens were beaten, were jailed, were even killed during this time. So when apartheid ended in 1994, the new government had a problem. What would they do with all of these who were guilty under the old system? If they put each person in jail for the amount of time they deserved, it would decimate their society. But on the other hand, they couldn't just pretend that nothing had ever happened. So they set up what they called the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This was a system where those who had committed crimes under apartheid, they could receive amnesty or a, a much lighter sentence but they had to come forward and, in open court, admit what they had done before the victims, before the families of the victims. They had to confess uh, their wrongs. Another reason why confession is essential is community can't be formed when those involved aren't honest and open with each other, when the members are living under pretense. I have a slide here of Ephesians 4.25. Paul writes, Each of you must tell the truth to your neighbor because we are parts of each other in the same body. Paul was telling us, We can't be part of a whole and be lying to one another, putting up a false front, concealing ourselves. Richard Foster writes, Therefore, we hide ourselves from one another and we live veiled lies and hypocrisy. But when we do this, it prevents community from happening. We can't support one another, build one another up in love, if we are hiding our true selves. Finally, confession is essential to community because confession provides accountability. When we can't hide our sins, when they are brought out into the open among the community, when others can hold us responsible, it can help us to overcome our sins. Look at the problem we have with road rage. Why do ordinary, ordinary people, who usually are polite and decent and kind, why do they become so rude and insulting when they get behind the wheel of a car? And a big reason for this is we feel anonymous in our cars. No one knows who we are. So we feel free to let things fly. When we know that our actions aren't secret, 
we are far more likely to live the way we should. John Wesley gave us a good example in this. When he established his followers, he put them into small groups called bands. And these were usually groups of less than 10 people who were committed to live holy lives. And so Wesley had them practice what he called close conversation. And I have a slide here of several questions that they would ask one another. Every week when they came together, they would ask each other, what known sins have you committed since our last meeting? What temptations have you met with and how were you delivered? Is there anything that you thought, said, or done that you feel uneasy about, unsure of whether it was a sin or not? Do you have anything that you want to keep secret and not want anyone to know about? Can you imagine what a difference it would make for us if we knew we would be held accountable like this to our fellow believers? The group Alcoholics Anonymous, they've been very successful in rehabilitating uh, people for drugs and alcohol. And I think a large part of this is due to the fact that they build community. And they, they build community to push one another to sobriety. And they make confession a major part of the 12 steps of their process. Step five requires them to admit to themselves, to God, and to at least one other person the exact nature of each of the wrongs they've committed. Steps eight and nine require them to make a list of everyone they've harmed and to make direct amends whenever possible. And step 11 uh, requires them to continue to take a personal inventory of their daily actions and when they are wrong, to promptly admit it. <clears throat> now, I think this works because it follows the biblical model for confession and community. First, we admit our sins. We don't make excuses. We don't rationalize. We admit that we are sinners before God. I have a slide here of Proverbs 28:13. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Another slide comes from Numbers 5, uh, verses 5 through 8. Once we've confessed, we have to make amends. Numbers says, The Lord spoke to Moses, When a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit, he shall confess his sin that he committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong. Finally, we have to live confessional lives. As we grow in Christ, the Spirit will reveal problems to us. And when these are revealed, we are expected to confess, to put them under the blood. I have a slide here of John 16, 13, where Jesus says, But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. So as we walk with the Spirit, the Spirit convicts us, shows us things in our lives that need to be repented of, and then it's our responsibility to confess and repent. It's interesting that uh, Alcoholics Anonymous requires its members to confess to at least one other person. This can be a powerful mechanism for growth. Now, 
We don't believe that you are required to confess your sins to another. But Scripture does tell us there's a unique power and deliverance available to us when we have another person act as a living, breathing embodiment of Christ to whom we can confess. Several verses uh, I have on the slide, uh, one from James 5.16, where it says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And then from John 20, 23, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So we can see uh, how powerful it can be to make a confession to another person. But as we talk about this idea of confession, there are a couple of things we need to keep in mind. First, if we are confessing to another person, we need to choose that person wisely. Not all Christians are equipped to handle uh, something like this. Also, confession is not intended to be open-ending. At some point, our self-examination needs to come to a termination point. We don't want to fall into a permanent habit of self-condemnation. Confession begins in sorrow, but it is intended to end in joy. Now, a second essential step in creating community is commitment. The exiles came together and they made the decision they would be the people of God. They would be fully obedient to what God required of them. Ezra chapter 8 and 9 and 11 tells us, they told Ezra to bring the law so that they could hear it. And then it says they listened attentively to it. Then they made a binding agreement, putting it in writing. They had the leaders, the Levites, the priests to affix their seals to it. And finally, it says they bound themselves with an oath and a curse to follow the law of God given through Moses. So we can see them demonstrating commitment, uh, that they are committing themselves to fully obeying this law and committing themselves to acting as a group. You know, their commitment was to God, but it was also to each other. Each one was responsible not only for himself, but for the group as a whole. A private sin had consequences for the entire group. Commitment is the decision to do what needs to be done regardless of the cost. And commitment requires something. It requires a sacrifice. Jason Halveston says, when we make a commitment, we always lose something. And that's why commitment is essential to creating communion. As we sacrifice for each other, it wipes out any selfishness on our own part. Community and selfishness cannot coexist. Look at the picture of commitment that we get from Scripture. I have several verses here on a slide. Uh, Romans 12.10 says, Honor one another above yourself. Galatians 5.13 tells us, Serve one another in love. Galatians 6.2 tells us, Carry each other's burdens. And then Ephesians 5.2, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, commitment is this willingness to go all in 
Do we see that in our churches today? I found a question on a website that I thought was very interesting. It asks people, are you married or only dating your church? And that's something we really need to think about. You know, have we made this all-in commitment to our church, to the community that we belong to? I thought it was interesting. I found the uh, membership covenant from Saddleback Church, uh, the one that is uh, pastored by Rick Warren. Uh, And what it says, every member must agree to the following. They must agree to protect the unity of the church by acting in love toward one another. They must share the responsibilities of the church by praying for its growth, inviting others to attend. They must serve the ministry of the church by discovering their own gifts and talents and by developing a servant's heart. And finally, they support the testimony of the church by attending, by living a godly life, by giving regularly. So the Saddleback Church tells its members, when you become part of this community, you need to make a commitment to it. So commitment isn't easy, but it's a crucial step in creating community. The third essential step that we see is celebration. Celebration is the glue that holds community together. We are rejoicing together, delighting in God. This is essential to being God's people. When the exiles had gathered themselves together to hear the law, they actually began to weep as they heard the law and they realized the extent of their sins, when they realized how far they had fallen from what God expected. But what is interesting is Nehemiah and Ezra stop them. They tell them, this is not the time for mourning, for weeping. Before they repented, before they confessed, before they renewed the consecration, the very first thing they were told to do was rejoice. They are told, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy. We often fail to recognize the importance of celebration, but Scripture shows us celebration was an important part of being people of the covenant. God actually built into Israel's yearly calendar 30 feast days every year. And each Sabbath was intended as a feast day as well. So when you add those in, you get more than 80 days of feasting a year. 80 days of delighting and celebrating in God. I have a slide here from Leviticus chapter 23, verse 40. And this, to me, is one of the most surprising verses in the Bible. But it shows us how important celebration was to the worship of God. Every year, the Israelites were commanded to take their tithes, their first fruits, to Jerusalem and offer a sacrifice to God. But there were some who lived a long distance from Jerusalem. For them, it would be an extreme hardship to carry the crops, the animals themselves. And so what they were told to do was to sell the offerings and the tithes and then take the money itself to Jerusalem. But what is surprising is what they were told to do once they had reached Jerusalem. 
Leviticus tells us, Then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses. Spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice. So we can see how crucial it was to delight, to celebrate in God. The exiles were actually told, be still, this is a holy day, do not grieve. So why? What would be wrong or inappropriate to mourn, to weep on a holy day? Well, this tells us something important. Our relationship with God begins with God himself. It begins with the recognition of God's grace and mercy and love. It doesn't start with our sinfulness. There's a place for recognizing our own sin, but the focus is God. Our sins can't become a bigger issue than God himself. When we refuse to celebrate, it's actually a a sin, a mark of disrespect to God. Jesus tells us the story of the prodigal son. And when the prodigal son came home, it wasn't the prodigal who was condemned. It was the older son, the good son the son who had remained at home and been obedient. But he refused to celebrate. He refused to join in the rejoicing. And so when we don't celebrate, we are treating what God has done for us as if it had no value, as if it was no, of no consequence or of no importance. I have a slide here with a quote from John Piper where he says, God is most pleased in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Celebration is finding this joy and delight in who God is, in recognizing the supreme value and perfection of God, that God is the ultimate in goodness and righteousness. And this is what we mean when we say God is holy, that God is perfection itself. God is the ultimate object of our delight and our worship. We know that God delights and rejoices in Himself, and He created us so that we might delight in Him. So we offer God ultimate praise when we find our greatest delight in Him. And this is shown to us in Scripture over and over again. I have a slide here of several verses uh, that talk about the idea of rejoicing. Rejoice always, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, 1 Thessalonians. Philippians 4.4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is with you. He will take great delight in you, will rejoice over you with singing. And then we have from the Psalms, This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Then you will fill me with joy in your presence. Psalm 16.11 Psalm 149, the Lord takes delight in his people. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. So, we see something incredible here. Nehemiah tells us, the joy of the Lord is our strength. In other words, celebration is essential if we are going to be people of the covenant. 
because celebration is what enables us to keep the covenant. I have a quote here from Richard Foster. He writes, Joy is the motor, the thing that keeps everything else going. Without joyous celebration to infuse the other disciplines, we will sooner or later abandon them. Joy produces energy. Joy makes us strong. So celebration, finding pleasure in God and in His creation, finding pleasure in our relationship as God's people, this is an essential part. And it's essential because pleasure was a major motivation of God in creating this world. I have a slide here of Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, where it says, For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So we can see pleasure was part of the creation from the very beginning. God's pleasure and our pleasure. And when we celebrate, we are participating in this pleasure. So as we've seen from today's lesson, living in community is essential to our growth, to our maturity in Christ. That is what God designed. He wants us to live as part of a body. Each Christian contributes to the life of every other Christian. When we ignore community, when we fail to be part of the body of Christ, we are not able to grow as we should grow. So, I want to challenge you this week. How can you become part of the body of Christ? How can you work to create community in your local church? What steps can you take beginning this very week? Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great privilege of being part of your people, of being part of the body of Christ and having the life of Christ flow through us as we are in community with one another. And we ask that you would help us this week uh, to live in you and to work with each other to make that a reality. And we'll give you the glory and the praise in your name. Amen.